I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So I warned them. I said, I would prioritize some sleep tonight because they didn't know. We said, we're going to go, you know, we're going to go on a little, we're going to go on a hike tomorrow, you know, prepare for like two hours. And look, I knew it wasn't two hours, okay? We planned to make them walk five kilometers in direct sunlight on the side of a Colombian road. We planned it to be like this because the whole thing was I wanted to break people. That's Jesse Lee Ward. She was a business coach, and that was from a video she made earlier this year describing a so-called retreat she sold to her clients. That little hike ended up being over 15 hours long. And before it was over, she convinced the participants to go for a midnight boat ride, jump in the ocean, and sleep wet on the beach. Jesse Lee Ward died of cancer this fall. Before that, though, she was a star in the worlds of life coaching, multi-level marketing, and wellness. At the intersection of those worlds is where you're going to find the podcast, The Dream. The show examines how people get pulled into these worlds with the intention of improving their lives, but often end up worse off than they started. This is Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. And today, I'm joined by Jane Marie, the creator and the host of The Dream. In their latest season, The Dream looks into life coaches like Jesse Lee. They sell promises of prosperity, health, and happiness, and sometimes it works. But sometimes, well, you end up shivering on the beach in the middle of the night. Jane Marie joins us from Glendale, California. Jane, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Hi. So in the first two seasons of The Dream, you looked at multi-level marketing in the wellness industry. How are those connected to the world of life coaches? A bunch of different ways, actually. Um, the multi-level marketing industry, we can start there. Um, we explored how it's not really a industry with any product to sell other than a dream of, you know, achieving financial freedom through starting your own small business. But really, you're just giving money to a company and then convincing others to do the same. And a lot of these companies, in order to keep people kind of hooked on the dream as they realize they're not actually selling any diet shakes or, you know, they can't find a market for their product in their hometown because they've already recruited everyone to be in the scheme with them. These companies often sell courses or books or conferences and Zooms. They sell basically self-improvement packages and career coaching and business coaching and life coaching to the folks within their organization. Often it's, you know, rah-rah sessions and a lot of blaming the victims um, for not working hard enough, um, not prioritizing their small business. Um, It's a lot of shame going around um, to keep people, you know, kind of sucked in. And yeah, so that was one element of why this ties in is just because so many of those MLMs participate in that. Um, The other is that many MLMs also sell wellness products. So they all kind of go together by design, I believe. You open this season with 
that story that we talked about in the beginning about Jesse Lee Ward and the hike in Columbia. Why did you want to focus on that story? Because I think it shows how life coaches, you know, with enough power and greed, I believe, can create sort of a cult of personality and just become culty, like a cult leader. It's obviously manipulative. She uses a lot of the same tactics that cult leaders use to keep people in her orbit. Um, And it shows you how, you know, regular people can find themselves on the side of a road having a diabetic emergency because they believe that this person who calls themselves a coach has all the, the answers to financial freedom and happiness. And then all of a sudden you're in an emergency from listening to someone who's convinced you of all that and paying them a lot of money. And later on in the series, you got a chance to interview her. And in that episode, you talk about how you feel really awkward doing an accountability interview with someone who has cancer. And of course, not long after that, she she did pass away from cancer. How do you look back on that uh, interaction and experience now? Yeah, that awkwardness was what propelled us to make a, another episode, episode 10. Um, nine was supposed to be the last in the series, but she died two months after our first interaction that you heard on episode nine. And it was very sudden, even though everyone knew she had cancer, she wasn't speaking about it like it was like she was nearing the end. In fact, she put a video out a few a week before she died or two weeks before she died saying that her cancer was in remission or heading in that direction. And then suddenly she's gone. So she died a couple days after our season was released. And I felt like we had a dilemma, um, mainly because I didn't know if I should, you know, change the episode or take it away. And um, in talking with people for the bonus episode, some death doulas and people who used to be friends with her, what they said was she was completely herself in the interview with me in episode nine, as hard as that is for me to accept that someone can behave the way she did. I mean, essentially, she was very dismissive of me and my questions. And then after we hung up was very critical and mean toward me to her followers for days. But I think that's how she lived, you know, (laughs) like she Mm -hmm. chose to put that out there in the world and to kind of have that sort of attitude. And I think she she died the same way, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, like a me against the world kind of attitude. Do you think ultimately Jesse Lee Ward is a is a representative of the life coaching industry as a whole? No, no. I I think she's like any of the topics we've explored, you know, in wellness there's a ton of well-meaning people with good science who are really helping people, right? Um it's not a bad thing to encourage people to eat better and move their bodies. Those are great things. Um, I think that you know what makes these stories interesting is that, for lack of a better phrase, there are bad guys in any industry. Um, and that's kind of, we want to help define the distinction there in all of these areas that we look into. So I will say that for MLMs, I don't think there's a good one. Um, I, I think there are less bad ones um, and more bad ones. Like, I think there, there's it's on a scale. Um, but as far as life coaching goes, I know that the majority of life coaches are very well-intentioned and effective and um, good people. But it has the right exact right holes in it for the bad guys. 
mm-hmm. as a business model, right? It doesn't have, like I said, it doesn't have any regulation. There's no barrier to entry. So basically anyone can hang a sign outside their door and say, I'm a life coach and this is how much I cost. And a, a lot of people sign up under people like Jesse Lee and lose a bunch of money, lose a bunch of money and lose, you know, a lot of other things too. lose relationships and their health and all kinds of stuff. So that's, you know, part of the purpose of our show is is making that distinction. And when you started researching life coaches, what did you expect to find? Did you expect to find a majority kind of good intentioned group of people? Or did you expect to find more of those holes that you were talking about? I don't know if I expected in our hunt to come to some conclusion about, you know, this is what life coaches are like. I think my my bigger question was, what is it about us that wants this to be something <laughs> that mm-hmm. is worth the money, that works, that is an alternative to keeping your no- nose to the grindstone or, you know, whatever, it, that there is a magic bullet. Um, essentially, again, that's what our show always explores is are these, what is it about us that really wants these cheat codes to life? Um And are they good for us? And is this way of thinking helping people? And so what is it about us? (laughs) What is it about about us? us? (laughs) I mean, honestly, we've been sold a crock of (laughs) at least in this country. And it's, you know, part of the machine, right? You have to teach children to believe in America and the opportunities here. And not to say nobody gets them, but the vast majority of people will pretty much stay in their same station in life their whole life. And that's fine. You know, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. that is absolutely fine. But the striving that we press upon everyone here, which I think functions to keep people working in low paid jobs, you know, um, tied down financially in all kinds of ways while we watch money hoarders map this all out for us. Right. Um, We're basically just trained up, raised up from children to believe that if we just work harder, work harder, work harder, we'll be rewarded. And a few people will. And most people won't. And a lot of people will cheat. That's the lesson, I guess. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) be less optimistic. No, I'm kidding. Um, So let's say people are shopping around for a life coach. How do you tell who's legitimate and who's not? Well, I think the first thing is to get really clear about what you want to accomplish. Understanding and having reasonable expectations for yourself and being able to communicate those to someone else is your first line of defense. I think also it's there's a thing called funnel hacking this could get really boring really fast. So I'll try to do it quickly. Lay it on me. Lay it on me. If you notice that someone has a product and then they have another product, but you can't get to that product until you get the first product. And then if you get to the second product, you are have an opportunity for five more products that you can buy. Like it looks very slick marketing and inside access to tools and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I would also not invest in that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It is like by design built to drain you of money every step of the way. Um, and that's that's very, very popular. Funnel hacking. There's like conferences for funnel hacking. Interesting. Um, yeah, where people get together and they talk about which products, like, you know, is it a is it an exclusive video link that you send out to people for $49.95? Or do you have a booklet that you sell? Or do you have a 
in-person Zooms. Like, what's the next thing once you've hooked people at a certain price point? What's the next thing that you can sell them for a little bit more, a little bit less, and just try to keep them as like a constant source of income? And you actually have some firsthand experience with this. Well, not the funnel hacking, but life coaching, because part of the podcast is also about your own experience of getting a life coach. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I found my Jesse, the good (laughs) Jesse, (laughs) the good witch. She is kind of a witch. Um, I, I had a great experience. I went for like a wellness coach, which is funny because I did this whole season kind of ripping on that industry. But I was feeling very much like in my mental health struggles um, of the past few years that um, the thing that everybody tells you to do, which is to move your body and stop eating Taco Bell every day, I wasn't doing. And I couldn't motivate myself to not do that. And I knew that if I could do those things, as everyone says, it does change your mood. It does, you know, give you more energy and make you happier. So I wanted someone who would kind of start there and to address a lot of things that I was too depressed to really take on, but that would be inappropriate for my actual therapist to like, my therapist should not be texting me every day. Like, Hey, (laughs) did you make the appointment yet? You know, like that's, (laughs) I don't want that. (laughs) Yeah. That's its own red flag. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, but Jesse, my Jesse, my coach can do it fine, you know, and I can push back and be like, no. Yeah. And why was it important for you to include so much of your own personal struggle and your own story in the show? Because I wasn't having any fun making it at Mm. first. Mm -hmm. I honestly, it wasn't a plan. I knew what I wanted to talk about this season. I knew that it was going to be about life coaching, but I didn't plan to get so personal until we were really in production. And I was depressed. (laughs) I was really depressed. And, you know, I don't know if it's like making lemonade out of lemons, but I thought, well, this is kind of what the show's about, you know, (laughs) this is what this season's about. So I might as well be honest. Okay, I want to let people hear a little bit from the dream. In a minute, we're going to listen to a clip where we'll meet a woman named Jennifer Ryla. She had a coach named Ray Higdon. And can you tell us a little bit about both of them? Sure. So Jennifer is um, a mom, I think in her late 30s in in Michigan, um, who was with an MLM for many, many years and kind of reached the middle but wasn't really making any money but was had a high ranking in the company, got the Mercedes, all that stuff. And because she wasn't making money, she turned to a coach. And that was Ray Higdon, who is a coach for network marketers and other business people. Um, he masquerades as this business coach, but I have got all of his books. I've read them. I've, <laughs> I have tried my hardest to figure out what this guy's actually teaching people. And it's not much. It's all just how to market yourself and how to be part of the hustle culture. So that, that's Ray. And Ray convinced Jennifer, I think she was primed having been in this MLM for so many years and failing, but continuing to be told that she's just right on the edge. She's on, you know, she's just about to like tip over into the black, right? And he caught her and somehow convinced her to pay $5,000 to also become a coach. Yeah, it's quite a wild story, and I I want people to take a listen now. So here's Jennifer giving us a peek inside the MLM to Life Coach Pipeline. So I was looking for 
like somebody to tell me what to do every day, like looking for what was missing. Like, what am I not doing? And I thought it was hiring a coach. And so I, I listened to him and within like, because he taught like more manipulative scripts, he taught like this cold messing messaging. There were things that were a little, little tweaks that I did differently. I did begin to like see some changes in as far as like I was talking to more people, which felt like I was being more successful. And I was following up a little bit more with people because I think I had this new sense of confidence. Like it was this new group, this new community I was a part of. It felt very exciting. And so I ended up actually having like a, a pretty high sales, personal sales month that month. And so I thought this is working. It like just justified my investment. I asked Jennifer to walk me through some things she learned from this guy. Ray sells books that you can order online. One is called Time, Money, Freedom. Ten simple rules to redefine what is possible and radically reshape your life. There are lots of tips and tricks in there, but it's more of a mindset thing, like that book I keep mentioning, Think and Grow Rich. It's just kind of generic. When Jennifer joined, she was encouraged to buy more of his books and his pamphlets, and these contained the real specific info she needed. One, called Social Media Scripts, is literally scripts that you're supposed to use when pitching the business opportunity to a potential recruit. Here we go. And this is this gives you a peek into Ray. Having the social media scripts is like having Ray Higdon in your back pocket. There's literally nothing a prospect could say that could stump me. We had a little fun with these scripts. I'm reading the part of a reluctant recruit here, which came very naturally to me, and I hope you enjoyed the performance. And she's reading the part of, well, herself, but using Ray's words. Jennifer, it's not for me. Well, I felt that way, too, when I first started my business. I had, knew nothing about business. I don't need any more money. Well, you may not need money right now, but you mentioned that you have children, and you never know what could happen. And besides, a lot of people don't do this for the money. We have an amazing community of like-minded people who will lock arms with you. And we just have a lot of fun. And I'd love to go on trips with you and have fun together. But I also already know so many people that are selling it. Well, the great thing is, is that <laughs> those people know people that you don't know. Is this a pyramid? <laughs> oh, yeah. I've heard of those things. This is definitely not what that is. This is more like building your own little Arbon tree. You're building branches of a tree. A triangular shape. <laughs> like a, a Christmas tree. Pine tree. <laughs> this one is more of an octagon. Way more money in an octagon as there are more sides. Okay, LOL. Quit messing around. You want to make money or not? Not. <laughs> Jane, I thought this was groundbreaking material. I am not kidding you. So then I was called to become a part of his 100K inner circle coaching, which promises to help you get to the six-figure income in your network marketing business. Okay. And so I thought this is just the next step. Like I see now that I was just pushed through like his sales pipeline. And that was a $5,000 investment. And I was told that I'd get coaching with Ray himself. 
And I would be assigned a coach, but like it was a more intimate relationship with Ray. And like he really takes care of his inner circle. What ended up happening is he just went live in there once a month. I mean, you're already seeing him live in a Facebook group every day, in the Rank Makers every day. It really was no different. A lot of it was just regurgitated content from Rank Makers. And then you did get an accountability coach, which I loved my coach. Like I did enjoy my time with her and I do feel like she held me accountable. It's just like having a workout buddy, right? Was it worth $5,000? No. I asked Jennifer what was different about the inner circle. There was much more mindset stuff inside of this group than there was in Rank Makers. I think Rank Makers starts off as like, do a Facebook Live, send this script to somebody, send it to 10 people, um, write down your goals. Like it's, it's very strategy focused. So that makes people think like I'm actually doing something to grow my business. Well, then when you get enrolled into inner circle, it's all about the mindset and of a leader and leadership. And like, here's how you think abundantly. Here's how you lead a team. It's trainings about team culture and how to, one of the sayings in rank makers is, keep people around the campfire because sooner or later they're going to catch a spark, which basically just means like you're going to burn them to the ground. (laughs) Indoctrinate them so much. Indoctrinate them so much that they just like have to, like they have to believe. It felt like people who were thinking bigger and that's what you're always seeking is you're the, you're the, average of what the five people that you spend the most time with. So it kind of felt like what, I was, what is that? That's another saying I feel like. It is. It's a it's another saying that like if you're poor, it's cuz you're hanging around poor people. If you're sick, it's cuz you're hanging around sick people. If you're negative, it's because the people in your life are negative. So put yourself around successful, happy, wealthy people and your life will change. Um, is that like, if someone's, you know, not making the most of their lives, that that's like a problem that could rub off on you? No, the way it's framed is if someone is sick, divorced, working a job they don't like, needing to lose weight, you are the savior who can provide the solution. And it's your job to change them. If they don't want it, that's on there. That's their problem. Don't waste time on them. If they don't take action or make any changes personally, then you don't give them the time of day. So you don't look for other ways to help them. It's really not about helping them. It's about getting them into your pyramid. From Little Everywhere and Pushkin Industries, that was the dream. Their team includes Mike Richter, Nancy Golombiski, Joy Sanford, and Peter Clowney. It's written, hosted, and executive produced by Jane Marie. And she's with me today to share some of her favorite podcasts. I am so appreciative that you played that clip because that is exactly the kind of education you get from Ray Higdon. That's what's in the books, you know, like a bit of nothingness and just pressure. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Like, okay, don't have friends who are sick. What? (laughs) Like, don't have friends who are poor. Okay, noted. Check. All right. What? That's not 
what kind of a coach would tell people that? Um, but that's yeah, that's like what his content is. Okay, so you not only have this podcast, but you actually have a book coming out next year about all of this. It's called Selling the Dream, the Billion Dollar Industry Bankrupting Americans. What can you tell us about that? Well, in making the first season, um, honestly, if someone had given me money to do it, I could probably make a show about MLMs until the end of time. There's so many. <laughs> there are so many stories. Um, and we'd done a bunch of reading and research, and it felt like there's so much more to say here about the why. You know, why did we start thinking this was a good idea, and how is this industry still making so much money? And why do people still start companies and model them this way? So that's what the book does. It just goes a step deeper. Um, it's kind of a romp, but it's also very depressing. So if you're into funny, depressing things, <laughs> you will like my show and my book. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it because funny, depressing is just, it's my jam. I, I love okay, that. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on now to some of your podcast picks. Um, mm -hmm. First up is a story from This American Life where you used to work. Uh, how do you look back on your time there? Oh, I miss so much about it. Yeah. I miss it. I really miss the structure. I, I hated it at the time. I hated how much I had to work. I hated the hours. I hated that we broadcast at night on Fridays. And uh, we would actually broadcast live where Ira reads the stuff in between segments in the, oh, I didn't in the know that. Days. Oh, I didn't well, know I don't that. think he does it anymore. But yeah. in the old days when I was there, we did it live in a studio and we'd have a small audience, about like 10 people that just had to shut up. And then we would be running down the hall with dat tapes at like one minute before the piece has to air. And I'm just like rolling off onto dat like in real time from a Pro Tools session. <laughs> um, so it was very exciting. It was really exciting to like be in a radio station and have like breaking news, you know, that kind of feeling. Um and I liked the structure and I loved all my coworkers so much. And I miss Ira so much. I miss all my coworkers. Um, and I still think of them as my coworkers. I, we're, we're all still very close. I miss that. I, I feel lucky that I have gotten uh, uh, to become the boss, sort of. <laughs> Maybe not the boss of many people, but um, I think at a certain point um, in a career like this, you you feel like, okay, I have some skills now and I'm, I'm, I'm just using them to like make Ira Glass more famous, <laughs> which is fine, but he doesn't need that from me. He's got plenty of people doing that. Well, you, you <laughs> wanted us to hear a story called Brooklyn Archipelago that aired uh, way back uh, in 2006. Why this story? I don't know. It's just, it's one of those, I think a lot of my favorite podcasts are things that are just absurd and surprising and make you go like, oh my God, that is so funny, but that is absolutely true. Like I would be having the same thought as this character. Um, I like surprising people and I like just being ridiculous. And I, I think that entertainment is so such an important part of good journalism and storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, even in ser on serious topics, so this is not one. <laughs> this is just a silly story that really stuck with me. And I, I think about it all the time. Well, it is a very wild story. It's uh, basically how a pleasure cruise that was supposed to last less than an hour turns into this multi-day wilderness survival ordeal <laughs> all within sight of the Empire State Building. So let's give it a listen here.
It was a glorious spring morning on Jamaica Bay, sun glinting off the water, gulls calling overhead as our young pleasure cruisers slumbered. The light filtering into the boat's cabin woke Roman and Alex Glubachansky first, and they came up on deck. What they saw was not good. After drifting through the night, the boat had come to rest in the shallows of a small bay alongside an uninhabited landmass. Stretching out behind them, they could see a long furrow where the tide had dragged them deep into thick mud. And as they stood there, blinking and wondering how this might have happened, the wind carried them another ten feet inland. They could see the skyline of Manhattan on the horizon, the runways of JFK Airport a little closer, and signs of civilization in every direction. They could even see boats passing by in the distance, but these were too far away to take any notice. It was obvious that they were, in a word, shipwrecked. The hungover sailors sat down to decide what to do. Roman and Glubachansky were in favor of waiting to be rescued or for the tide to rise and pull them out again. Meanwhile, Alex was formulating his own plan. Beyond the island they were closest to lay another landmass, which Alex was sure led somewhere. His idea was to swim to it, walk to civilization, catch a bus somewhere, and bring back help for his friends, who, as Alex remembers it, thought the plan was frankly idiotic. These are islands, said Roman, who in truth had actually been out on the bay before and was in a position to know. But Alex was sure that Roman was wrong. So Alex stripped to his underwear. He put what he thought he might need in a waterproof plastic mayonnaise jar. He brought his metro card for the bus he was going to swim to, an expired passport for ID, and his favorite Buddhist medallion for luck. He wrapped his clothes in a cellophane blanket and bid his friends farewell. Roman watched him disappear into the surf. Of course, I tried to stop him. I tried to, to give him reasonable things, but he got a little bit too much excited. So I decided to give him a challenge in life. <laughs> what, what should I just knock him down and say, stop it? You know, <laughs> he wanted to swim. You know, he wanted to swim, and uh, he sw- uh, he swam. I swam really, like really violently to get myself warmed up, and by the middle, I got really tired. And it was really cold, and I'm like, oh, it's, it's much worse than I thought. And, uh, and there's birds flying, like, like peeking on me. I'm like, oh, these crazy, strange, far away birds are going to bite me or, or something, you know? And I, and I got really lucky because my legs suddenly hit the, hit the bottom, and I'm like... And I got, was so happy when I came out there. I was so cold, but I was happy. Okay, and I was definitely sure that it was civilization because tall buildings were right behind the trees. They were like, and the bridge was right over there. And I'm like, oh, finally. And I, and, I, and I was even singing a song, walking. And the birds were screaming something to me. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I made it. I'm still not sure I understand why you left your friends, though. Because I thought we were going to be stuck there for a really long time, maybe for the whole day. The only thing I could do is just try to get to civilization. And especially these islands, they were... Uh, They were pressuring me to go there, you know, they were so close and I'm like, and I got really bored, you know, I wake up in the morning, I don't want to stay in one spot on the yacht and like, and and, and think about how we're going to get saved, you know, I really want to do something and uh, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have this this little adventure, I'm going to go out and try to make it somewhere and I did. Except he didn't. Soon he realized that he was indeed on another island with no way off except to swim back through the freezing water to rejoin his friends. And he wasn't about to do that. He was alone. 
So Alex set about doing all the things a good castaway should do. He wrote a giant help in the sand for the benefit of the planes landing at JFK. He circumnavigated the island looking for supplies. He found a stick and a piece of red cloth and made a flag to signal passing ships. Then he found several big pieces of styrofoam and some wood and spent an hour or two fashioning a raft, but it collapsed when he sat down on it. Undeterred, he went back to searching for something that would be his ticket off the island. And then he found it. It was the hollowed-out carcass of a jet ski, or as he calls it, a scooter. I knew, I 100% knew that it was going to float, although it was pretty badly dug into the sand. And um, as I was digging out the scooter, something really bad happened. Like there was a pieces of glass under it, I didn't see, I was just digging and digging. Uh, and I didn't have any, any shovel or anything. And I cut my finger really bad, I started getting huge amounts of blood was coming out. And um, I had this white t-shirt, it was eventually all in blood. Now there was really no way off the island, even by swimming. Because, well, you know, sharks. It was a galling situation. And it was made even more maddening because the city was right there. I was like thinking, how in the hell did I get myself into this situation? I, I never believed that something like this could happen in, the, in, like, in New York City, you know? Like in, in such a huge city that you could see skyscrapers like 10 miles away. And on the other side, you can die looking at them, you know? Like, and also, I got a little mad at the city of New York. Like, I, couldn't, I could understand if they had just one payphone there or at least, I don't know, like, a button to press to, to know that you're there, you know? By probably 6 o'clock in the evening, it was getting a little dark. All my excitement has fled away and... Um, I, uh, I got very cold, so I was like shaking, you know, shivering and no help at all. So I'm like, wow, this is gonna get really bad. Were you hungry at this point also? I was very hungry and I was very thirsty. And I found limes, I tried to uh, open them up, but they tasted so nasty, I couldn't, I, I didn't even think about eating them. Like there was no source of food other than the ducks. Ah yes, the ducks. You'll wanna hear about the ducks. I wasn't going to get rescued in the next hour or two. I had a plan to kill a bunch of ducks to get some warm blood to warm myself, you know, so, so to drink some blood and to cut them open and use them, like, to warm myself. I had this strange idea about uh, use them as slippers. I even had, after that, I even had this psychedelic idea of uh, floating on the ducks, making a, rat, a raft out of the ducks. Imagine uh, a man with a... Uh, with strings attached to the ducks uh, uh, floating on the water. So it's like this duck rider, you know? Totally normal for, uh, uh, for a Russian hiker to go and pick up a duck, and not just to kill it, but to eat it. Like. I can't, I don't, like you could just go over and pick up a duck? Like how did you catch the duck? Oh, um, uh, you just go after it with a stick. I mean, you're a human being. You got more brains than a duck. You can catch it. <sighs> what an episode. <laughs> and terrifying, <laughs> terrifying to hear him say, like, warn myself on the blood of with the, the blood. Like, it's like, what? <laughs> oh, my God. I just, it's so ridiculous, but you could totally put yourself there. Like... Yeah, if I got stranded on some weird island in Brooklyn, 
I'd have all kinds of crazy thoughts too if nobody was helping me. Um, I just think it's really, really funny. <laughs> From WBEZ in Chicago, that was This American Life. That story was produced by Brett Martin, along with Diane Cook, Jane Marie, Sarah Koenig, Alex Bloomberg, Amy O'Leary, and Lisa Pollock. The show is hosted by Ira Glass. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Your next podcast pick is a, a, an absolute classic. It's called My Year in Mensa. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who don't know, what is this show about? So the host is um, Jamie Loftus, and it is the kind of show you'll hear in my show that I try to do a similar thing sometimes, but she just nails it, which is kind of embed yourself in a world that you think you understand Um but is sort of like a secret society and figure out what it's about. And she does this with Mensa. And it's, you know, some of it is real, like reporting from, you know, what what things she had to do being a member, but also a lot of just really interesting um, writing and, and monologues around elitism and um, intelligence and all of this stuff. She's just so funny. And it just, it was such a fun idea. Like I, I when I heard it, it was a little bit after the show, uh, my show had come out. I was like so jealous that this idea got to be made. It was just something where I was like, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> that would have been so fun. But I couldn't have done it the way she did. She's brilliant. Okay, well, we're going we're gonna to take a listen to some of it now. In this clip, we're going to hear Jamie give us a bit of a backstory about how she got into Mensa. And just a bit of context, you'll hear her refer to Firehouse, and that's the name of a private alt-right Facebook group for Mensa members. A little over a year ago, I tested into the high IQ Mensa Society as an overpriced joke for a satirical column that I was writing. And the whole admittedly underthought idea was to just kind of make fun of what I thought then to be an outdated organization of people who had paid these steep dues to announce that they were smarter than 98% of the planet. So two jokey columns into this conceived project, the online trolls of Firehouse discovered my writing and just attacked from every angle. And for any woman who has like expressed an opinion online before, I received what I think most would consider the starter pack of like online harassment. So middling insults about my appearance, demands that I be removed from the group and was unfit to be there at all. And what most of Firehouse insists to this day was a death threat presented as a joke. Because the prevalent idea in this group, the argument then and the argument now, is that who you are online is not who you are in real life. So after posting a few of these comments to my Twitter last October without the names redacted, an action I have lived to regret in the preceding months, the satirical column was off. And it sort of had to be because the highbrow dorks I thought I was making fun of uh, didn't actually exist. When it comes down to it, Mensa is a group of thousands of people who did well on a test, 
one time, and the rest is completely unpredictable. The people I've interacted with online and in real life this past year are protective, they're more right-leaning than I could have imagined, and they are highly effective organizers of the occasional online mob. Sometimes they're families who are trying to have something in common with each other, and sometimes they're older single people who are seeking community. And sometimes they're people from remote areas looking to just meet up with other smart people to relate with. They're sometimes impossibly kind, and other times alarmingly not so. A lot of them are misfits, and some of them are on the autism spectrum, and at least one lunged and accused me of being a spy in a Sheraton suite where a cardboard cutout of Donald Trump was looming in the background at one in the morning on the 4th of July, and at least one comforted me for an hour after that happened. The Mensons contain multitudes, and they're more complex than I ever gave them credit for. And for that, I would suffer. So after the organized blocking and harassment campaigns against me started last fall, I stopped making fun of the Mensons who did not exist and started reporting on the Mensons that did. Going to their annual conference called the Annual Gathering in Phoenix is what I hope will be my last stop and a chance to finally understand them as many members have requested I do instead of making fun of them, which is fair. And to be clear, I was not here to cause any sort of commotion or really rock the boat in any way. Uh, Eric Andre already did that, and he did it way funnier than I would have. So I was truly just there. I'll play you a thing from Eric Andre's episode anyways. Hey, guys. I'm here for the convention. Do you have your well, I have a I have a 400 IQ. I'm in Super Mensa. Okay. Well, let me just go in this boardroom real quick. Wait, 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 wait. How high is the sky? Wait, 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 wait. I have questions. I have questions. I have questions. Wait, wait, wait. wait. And is that the best? Yes. Uh, but it wasn't what I was trying to do here. So no, this is not an outsider story of a random millennial inserting themselves somewhere they don't belong and making fun of it. And trust me, I was alive in 2015. I've written those stories. I didn't spend $700 of my own money to come to Phoenix in July to tease 2,000 people that hate me. I was actually invited. The member of Firehouse who invited me insisted, as is the company line, that I needed to meet the Mensons in real life instead of judging them from their direct online death threats. And so, for one second, let's return to that conference room on the 4th of July. Two says he's going to go to a different talk after growing bored with the speaker regaling us on the horny properties of chocolate. I stay and I push myself up against the wall. And as I'm writing a few things down on a pad of paper that has the Mensa logo just burning at the top, one of the favorite insults directed at me in Firehouse over the past year is just like pulsing through my head. And it goes like this. I am a Mensa, the comment says, towards the end of a multi-paragraph taunt. So presumably not a total idiot. All right, I'm taking you back a full year to summer 2018 when I first decided to take the Mensa test. And I'm sorry if you're feeling time jump whiplash, but you know what? Keep up, smarty. You know Mensa means stupid lady in Spanish, right? Like crazy lady. This is my friend Michaela, and we're drunk on those hangover in a bottle shandies they sell at CVS the night before I take the Mensa admission test. And at this time, I did not know that Mensa meant stupid lady in Spanish, uh, nor that I would be reminded of this once a week by someone or other for the next year. Because it didn't matter to me what Mensa meant, really. 
The point of what I was doing was to not get in and dump on the whole experience in 600 words or less for what I considered to be my birthright as a millennial woman, which is, of course, an underpaid personal experiences column on a middling culture website. The concept of a pay-to-play high-IQ society is ripe to be made fun of, and a lot of people have done it before. So as we kept drinking and watching King of the Hill, I built out my flawed vision of who I thought a Mensa member was. So I thought, all men, for sure, fiscally conservative, ideologically liberal, just solving puzzles and discussing the comedic merits of the Big Bang Theory. And this is all wrong, except for the last part. Uh, Mensons love the Big Bang Theory, and they're not funny. What I had not considered was that having $60 and the willingness to wake up on a Sunday to take the test at all made me a perfect candidate for this group. My entire generation has been hardwired to excel at standardized tests at the expense of all else. And to be honest, I had been taking practice tests in secret because I'm very insecure and because I wasn't having a lot of sex at this time. Besides, at this time, I thought that the concept of IQ tests had been proven over and over to be elitist pseudoscience designed to elevate a group who were good at multiple choice tests and deciding that makes them intellectually superior. Was this assumption as far off as my first picture of a Menson was? Well, like so many parts of this story, that's a complicated question. There's rumblings of talk about the role of IQ tests throughout history and the high IQ societies that have sprung into occasional relevancy over the past hundred years or so. So it's kind of hard to say, and the Menson I was picturing would probably tell you to look at the evidence and decide for yourself. The actual Menson might just tell you what they think with little or no sourcing whatsoever, which is why I feel comfortable telling you that I think IQ testing is still more or less bullshit does more harm than it does good. Yikes. But please, perceived Manson, decide for yourself. I love the air so horns. Much. I just want the air horn. I want like a one of those, whatever that sound pad is that they have at like clear channel radio stations, you know? It's hilarious. It, it's, it's like so good. It's like every uh, radio station in the Caribbean. Like that's what that's it reminds right. me of. So it's amazing. Yes. I love it. Uh, that was a clip from the podcast My Year in Mensa. It's created and hosted by Jamie Loftus. So, Jane, the next show on your list is Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel? What is this show about? Yeah, so she's a marriage and family therapist. Um, she made this show that is just it's so voyeuristic and it just scratches an itch again it's about being inside a world that you think you understand and then has so many questions come up after you've actually entered that world so every episode is just a couple's therapy session that you're eavesdropping on and it is riveting well let's listen to a bit of where should we begin um in this clip we're going to listen in on a therapy session with a married couple struggling with infidelity the podcast doesn't use their names and just refers to them as he and she so she had an affair and wants to salvage the relationship but he isn't so sure it can be saved let's listen i don't know i just like to feel less alone there I mean, to me, that when I feel that, I, I feel like, oh, okay, so it's it's like it's always been for me. Always with us or always like? No, my whole life. Say that again. 
I mean, I, I feel like it's cliche, but it sort of feels like, okay, this sort of, this point of pain that I'm experiencing, um, even if I do sort of open and invite and, and somebody who loves me is, I guess, trying to make an effort to be present, I'm not getting, I don't feel any resonance there then I sort of feel like, okay, I... That's my yeah, life. Yeah, that's... that. Fe it feels like a repetitive point in my life. Of what? Of, of personal pain for which there is no remedy. I know, but what are you remembering? Where do you go? I mean, other losses, my mother's death, my teacher's death other sort of life struggles. I know, but tell me a little more. Um, I ask because I can see that this is a, a few things sitting mm -hmm. on top of each other here. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, the sense of abandonment that I got from my mother when she sort of distanced herself from from me dealing with my alcoholic father, um, which you know then then she died when I was around 21, and and feeling you know sort of further abandonment from that. Um, uh, my my surrogate father's death when I was 28. Um, you know a divorce when I was 30. Um, I mean those those episodes of you're gonna you know, you're gonna deal with these on your own. His rage and his stuckness are the expression of his implicit memory. While he doesn't immediately remember, he can tell the story in this kind of rather intellectualized way. And it is getting through that intellectualized story, my mother who didn't really protect me from my father who was an alcoholic. And now he's just recounting. At some point, we go from recounting to remembering to reliving. It's because we can talk about betrayal and we can talk about deception and we can talk about lying and we can talk about rejection but then there is for every human being a particular pain point the thing that for them is either what they can't get over either what is being evoked what about that loss of how she saw the fact that you emphasize the suddenness of it. Mm -hmm. A piece of that suddenness is because of your history together. But a, it's, it's every detail that starts to point to a particular pain point. I, I don't know it. That's, mm -hmm. you know, but it helps to identify it. So that when you then go and you continue and it lands into, I know that place, that place where it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you've got other people around you. In the end, you're all alone. In the end, when shit hits the fan, it's all by you. Mm -hmm. And so, how do you reach out 
really. And you say to the other person, stay with me. Even while you have this tape player going on that says, in those moments, there is nobody. Mm-hmm. You know, we, some people have a worldview that says, there's always someone there for me. And some people have a, a worldview mm-hmm. that says, in the end, you're alone. And I think you're on the second. I would agree. And you? I'm on the other one. <laughs> Those are two fundamental worldviews. And I believe that the way we process our experiences has a lot to do with the fundamental worldview that we hold. I'm all alone. There's always someone there for me. He can offer her to be more self-reliant and she can offer him to learn to rely on others. And it's probably one of the most beautiful sleuth work of working with a couple in a story and a relationship is to find out what is the fundamental truth that informs the way each person lives in the world. That was a clip from Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel. That was a real therapy session with an anonymous couple hosted by Esther Perel. So, Jane, uh, we're, we're winding down on the time we have with you. But before we go, is there anything you can tell us about what's next for the dream or anything that you're working on that you want to share? I wish I could tell you what's next for the dream. I have. I know what's next, but I can't tell you yet. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> It's, but you have um, the book coming out. The book's coming I, out. That's coming out in March. Um, Selling the Dream is coming out March 12th, I believe. And uh, yeah, and then, the, and then the next season of The Dream should be coming out next fall. Um, if you know anything about America, there's something really big happening next fall. That's the only clue I'll give you. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to all of those things. Um, and where can we find you online? I am C. Jane Marie. That's S-E-E, Jane Marie, like C. Jane Run, on all the socials. I will find you there. Jane Marie, thank you so much for taking the time and and sharing uh, some of your work and some of your faves with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Jane Marie is the creator and host of the podcast, The Dream. Everything we played today was chosen by Jane. For links and more info on any and all of these podcasts, head to cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast playlist is Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. See you in your podcast feed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.